Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover, and this is episode 24 of the Lawyerist Podcast, a weekly podcast about lawyering and law practice. You can subscribe to the show in iTunes or using your favorite podcast app, or you can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we would really appreciate it if you took 30 seconds or probably less to give us a rating in iTunes. Today's podcast is sponsored by Smokeball, which automates the documents and forms you use every day and gives you a digital filing system in the cloud. Visit smokeball.com lawyerist to learn more. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Postali. That's P-O-S-T-A-L-I. Postali is a marketing agency for attorneys that will help you push your firm forward. Learn more about Postali by visiting postali.com lawyerist. So today we're going to try something a little different. The interview I'd planned to do fell through, so what I'm going to do is replay one of my favorite interviews so far with Ed Walters, the CEO of Fastcase, the legal research platform. If you haven't already listened to it, you are going to want to stay tuned. Here it is. With me is Ed Walters, the CEO of Fastcase, to talk about robots, artificial intelligence, and the law. Ed is wicked smart, and he has a long and impressive resume that I can't begin to summarize here. Uh, But uh, one of the interesting things that he has going for him is that as the CEO of Fastcase, he is sitting on a massive trove of the sort of raw data that artificial intelligence would need to work. And um, I mean, Ed, that's basically what Fastcase is, right? A massive trove of raw data. With a team of robots sitting on top of it. <laughs> Eventually, right? Right. Um, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to um, trip up and reveal some of the things that Ed's working on, but we are going to talk a little bit more about uh, the intersection between Fastcase and artificial intelligence and algorithms uh, a little bit further on. But, uh, Ed, why don't you uh, tell me a little bit about the uh, course that you have at Georgetown Law on the law of robots? So I've been teaching this for a couple of weeks now, and the idea is that robots aren't science fiction. We always think about them as something in our remote Jetsons future, but they're not. We have uh, autonomous systems around us every day. Things as simple as stock trading computers uh, and as complicated as war fighting drones and self-driving cars. And these aren't issues that are we have the luxury of waiting 20 years to regulate. We're going to have self-driving cars on the roads in 2020. They're already being tested in California and Nevada right now. And so because these things are very present concerns, we need to start thinking about how we regulate them and what the law is going to be right now. But unfortunately, it's not a conversation that's happening anywhere. So we're having it at Georgetown. I've got a a classroom full of curious students who are thinking about how we regulate robots, not in our distant future, but in our uh, messy and just figuring it out present. Are they loving this class? I mean, this is the kind of thing I would have 
signed up for the moment I saw it on the on the curriculum at law school. They are pretty much loving it. It's a it's a fun class. It's a, it's challenging and hard. We're talking about robots, but really what we're talking about is the frontiers of law. There will always be technological change, and it's important for law students as one of the tools in their drawer to uh, be able to think about how to regulate things that are new. Today, it's robots, but uh, you know, in, in the future, who knows what it'll be? Transhumanism, right. when we have uh, you know, external hard drives that we can plug right into our brains. It could be anything in the world. Uh, we can't even imagine what's next. But I think the important skill is for lawyers to be able to think about how to apply existing law to new facts and how to figure out when you need new laws altogether. So this is this all kind of it, what gives rise to all of this is just the massive fast pace of technology, which is Moore's law, right? That's exactly right. Can you give us yeah. can you give us the the quick summary of what Moore's law is? Because I'm not sure everybody is aware of exactly what that means. So Moore's law is named after Gordon Moore, the co-founder of Intel. And in 1965, Gordon Moore theorized that the price of uh, computer chips and their processing power, well, the processing power would double and the price would halve and the space required would halve every 18 months to two years. And in 1965, he was describing the trend from the early 60s in 1965. Most people thought he was crazy or that, you know, to the extent that Moore's Law was a law, it would only last for a few years. But science has actually made it a very compelling prediction. It continues to be true even today. Uh, even now, 50 years later, we continue along the path of Moore's Law. And what that means is that uh, your Apple Watch will have a thousand times the processing power of all of the computers that were used in the Apollo landings. Um, the processing power gets much faster and much smaller all the time. And the uh, last I heard, isn't it uh, a desk? The average desktop computer will have the computing power of the entire human race by when? Twenty twenty six. Okay. So if if um, because it's exponential, the growth rate is crazy fast, and right. you know, brain scientists believe that a human mind is uh, basically an exaflop processor. It can run a billion, billion floating point operations per second. That's how computer scientists measure the speed of a computer. Right. And uh, human brains are exceptionally fast, very creative, unpredictable computers that run uh, 10 to the 18th floating point operations per second. The fastest computers, you know, Watson, has the computing power of a rat's brain. It's something like 33 petaflops. To get from where we are today with Watson to the power of a human brain, uh, Watson would need a 100,000x uh, increase in processing power, which seems like a lot, uh, but the computer scientists following Moore's Law will tell you we probably get to that point somewhere in 2018. Well, the biggest the, I guess the, the thing, the exponential growth thing is really important, right? The year before we get a computer to the speed of the human brain, it will only be half as fast. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's a that's a, a very concise statement of uh, what exponential growth looks like. You know, in our in our kind of common usage, we say something grows exponentially when it grows very fast, but that's not really what exponential growth means. It means that um, 
when things double, the line has a huge hockey stick curve in it and not just a very steep curve. And when you get towards the end of it, it's almost completely vertical. Which is why it's not crazy for us to be talking about self-driving cars and we have phones that are more powerful than all of NASA in, in the, during the moon missions and things like that because it just keeps on charging forwards and we can watch cat pictures anywhere we go now. <laughs> That's right. We have an almost limited, limitless, limitless ability to uh, take pictures of our dinner and share it with friends. Or coffee, in my case. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I did stop doing that. My kids got tired of seeing pictures of espresso. Um, so it's not. It's totally not re- unrealistic what we're talking about here, and and we're not really talking about artificial intelligence because that implies sort of self. Um, uh, self-awareness, but what we're talking about is just raw computing power. We'll just be able to do some amazing things with the the hardware that we can build at that point. Right. And you know, just as an aside, I really don't like the term artificial intelligence. I I'm, think not, it's I'm not convinced it has a lot of meaning anymore, really. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we sort of think about the intelligence that machines have as artificial because it's just not very good. It's not mm-hmm. very sophisticated. It's clumsy. Um, on the other hand, you know, human beings uh, don't have a very good ability to do multiplication. We can't do it very fast. We can't multiply a lot of digits. We get it wrong all the time. Mm-hmm. Machines are much better. It doesn't make what we do artificial math. Right. It just means that it's a strength <laughs> that computers have that we don't. The intelligence that machines have right now isn't artificial. It's just clumsy. It's emergent. And uh, over time, we can expect it to get much better. Calling it artificial, I think, almost misunderstands the nature of intelligence. I'm curious too, but I want to I want to get back to your class because I'm it's I think it's just fascinating, but I also want to maybe dig into a little bit of what impact this might have on the actual practice of law. Uh, you know, what what can the lawyers listening expect to see uh, popping out of their computers in the next five to ten years or so. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, there's a there's a kind of a intellectual strain right now among lawyers that says that lawyering is different. It's not like other things. Therefore, the work of lawyers can't be replaced, uh, and that's almost certainly wrong. Um, almost uh, naive at this point. If you think about the kinds of things that computers can do and can do well. Um, you know, over time, it certainly grows to include some of lawyering. Richard Susskind is fond of putting lawyering work along a spectrum from very commoditized work to very customized work. And although machines may never be able to do the most customized work that lawyers do, the simple stuff, the form-based practice of law, will almost certainly be able to be done by machines. Um, If not completely, then you know, a great deal of that law could be done with wizards or intelligent agents. Um, it doesn't need to be like a, you know, a, a humanoid robot sitting across the desk, right. uh, but it very well could be a kiosk at the courthouse. Well, and I uh, suppose, too, what you have is, is if it's a spectrum of um, very commoditizable to very customized, um, imagine there's a Pac-Man munching away at one end, right? It's what what is commoditizable is just going to become more and more and more of that piece of that spectrum. Um, but, right. you know, maybe maybe it's a solace for lawyers. Um, there are lawyers in Star Trek. You know? <laughs> so I think a long ways from now, we're still going to have actual litigators. 
Um, but you know, maybe not drafting contracts. <laughs> well, it would be interesting if um, you know a lot of the worst part of litigating were taken out of the way. So, for example, document review. You already see this happening. When I was a lawyer at the uh, at the end of my uh, brief tenure in practice, my firm was handling the document production for the Exxon Mobil merger. Mm-hmm. And behind our office, there was an 18-wheeler parked 24 hours a day, either unloading boxes or packing up boxes. We had something like you know 10,000 square feet of office space that was just holding paper. Right. And you know, you it's it's crazy to think, but the images for those 18-wheelers full of documents now could fit on a handful of three terabyte servers, the size of you know three paperback books sitting on your desk. The, uh, the, the hope of predictive coding is that we might be able to much better, much more efficiently, much quickly, and with much less expense, find what's relevant or privileged in uh, a mountain of documents and get through it faster. So there's, a, there's definitely a dystopian part of this where you say, oh my gosh, there won't be enough jobs for lawyers. We'll all be on the street because robots will do all the work. But there's also kind of a utopian version of it where the practice of law involves much less drudgery, where you have a very quick disposition of frivolous lawsuits and the system can focus more attention on actual hard questions, deal with them faster and more substantively and with more brain space. That kind I think of that's t- the hope. Yeah, that kind of touches on something I've wondered about, which is uh, we, we uh, as lawyers kind of uh, we keep wondering how lawyers, how computers are going to adapt to the work that we do, but we haven't really stopped to ask how the court systems may adapt to uh, the work that computers do. Um, for example, if uh, computers are putting together, let's say, uh, much more templatey, less sophisticated wills and trusts, maybe the probate courts will stop worrying so much about the details that. Uh, lawyers worry about and just start trying to effectuate the testator's intent, intent based on those forms. Uh, and then you cut out a huge swath of the need for lawyers. Or in litigation, maybe uh, the courts will decide to figure out a way to make it a lot easier to represent yourself. Um, and then, or, or maybe diversion to arbitration or negotiations. Uh, and, uh, and then maybe you just don't need as many litigators. So uh, I, what I wonder is, should we also be thinking about ways that lawyers could be made irrelevant by changing the system itself um, to accommodate computers? Or more important, because we get some of the trivial parts of practice out of the way. So imagine, for example, people who are engaged in a contract also have like a contract monitor that will Mm -hmm. flag a potential breach for one of the parties so they don't have to monitor it themselves. Or for a company, if you have a compliance agent, that tells you you are now running a risk for litigation. And so it could be like a kind of a private algorithmic council that says you can take the following steps and reduce your risk of litigation by 82%. Mm-hmm. You know, if you could have these kinds of uh, intelligent agents, it could make the world a lot smoother. Um, and yes, it, it would remove some of the, the legal work that people do, but also would remove a lot of the friction and agitation in the system. This is a little bit of an esoteric question, maybe, but um, if uh, if if what we essentially do is plug all of the contracts into a database and let an algorithm sort out the the ideal contract from that massive uh, database of contracts, do we have to worry that the law, or or at least the products of the law, the contracts and things, become completely static because 
Um, just like it, the lawyer who's been practicing for 30 years and using the same form over and over and over again, it never really changes. Yeah, I can't tell if that's a dream or a nightmare. Right. I mean, maybe they should be <laughs> static in some cases. Somebody was telling me the other day that in California, when you buy and sell a house, nobody uses agents because the contracts are standard. Hmm. You know, the, the moving parts in a purchase of a house are always kind of the same. And you have, you know, some provisions that are kind of buyer set friendly and some that are seller friendly. But, you know, if you can, if you can standardize those things, you reduce the overall cost of buying and selling houses by a great deal. And I think that uh, if you look at the work of like Kingsley Martin at KM Standards, he has uh, downloaded 250,000 employment agreements, for example, and he said, here are the terms that are common in all of them. There's nine different provisions, and now we can really tell you like what the distribution of uh, salary is for certain jobs, and we can tell you how these, uh, these contract terms are drafted and what's standard and what's not. Hmm. And you know, if, you, if you can standardize the, the very routine stuff, uh, then you can focus more attention on the events that are really strange or really require a lot of legal judgment. And I suppose if you have a standard agreement, it's a little bit easier to negotiate away from that standard agreement than if you're just starting from scratch. Right. And everyone knows you're, you are uh, departing from it. You know, if, mm-hmm. uh, if you are, you can be very upfront about it. You know, one more point about this, Sam. If, um, I think it's a very fair concern that there won't be enough lawyer jobs or manufacturing jobs when things become much more mechanized when we have intelligent agents who take care of some of these parts but it's the, that concern really parallels a concern uh, of the industrial revolution mm-hmm. in the uh, in the late 1700s and early 1800s when we started to have these mechanized tools of production people had the exact same worry will there be enough jobs for people when you can make horseshoes on an assembly line, when you can um, you know, produce garments and textiles with machines instead of by hand, people were worried that the machines were gonna take all the jobs. In fact, the exact opposite happened. There was so much more work because suddenly you could be the blacksmith not just for your town, but the blacksmith for all of Europe. Uh, there was so much more work that it caused huge labor problems. Uh, there was, you know, child labor and uh, very long work days and horrible working conditions and slavery because there weren't enough people to do all of the jobs that needed to get done. Far from destroying all the jobs, it actually created so many new jobs and so much demand for work, the world couldn't even deal with it effectively. And it was the, the legal regulation of the Industrial Revolution um, in the 1900s with the Fair Labor Standards Act and minimum wage and hour laws um, and the abolition of slavery in the, in the mid-1800s. Um, it was the fact that it trailed so far behind the Industrial Revolution that was the problem. And that's exactly the concern that we have here with uh, this kind of coming age of robotics. If it takes 20, 30, 50 years for us to intelligently regulate and um, you know, fairly distribute the benefits of robotic labor, then we're going to end up with a very chaotic, difficult, uh, painful 100-year period. If we can be smart about it and we can get ahead of it, uh, it could be a really wonderful golden age for manufacturing. It could bring millions of jobs back to the United States. It could be an era where practicing law is the best it ever has been because you worry less about uh, Rule 11 sanctions and frivolous motions for summary judgment and 
uh, you know, frivolous lawsuits. And you can really spend time advising clients and dealing with hard issues and um, improving the administration of justice, making the law better. Well, it's possible, I suppose, that you know, programming a computer with a brain the size of a planet, literally, is, is no small task. And programming a computer with a brain the size of a planet to solve not a particular person's legal problem, but any legal problem in a defined area that may come in front of it, is a monumental task that requires not just programmers, but sophisticated legal thinking to solve right. those problems. And so we may not be we or some lawyers um, or a, h a huge number of lawyers may not be representing a client, but may sort of be representing all of the United States by trying to solve um, a specific practice area, essentially. It's a much bigger problem. Or maybe representing all of humanity. Yeah. Um, you sort ooh, of think about the, cool. the kind of legal jobs that people might have. It, I think one trend would be that we move from a one-to-one -one representation model to a one-to-many representation model. Mm -hmm. If you are an expert in uh, copyright law, you might be doing things like trying to uh, encode into software rules that help people from violating copyright or protecting their copyright mm -hmm. or assigning Creative Commons rights um, in software. You might be globalizing American copyright law so that someone who is in Cambodia who wants to claim uh, an American copyright can enter the system. It might be translation from one language to another. It might also be reducing the rules of your particular area of law into a machine-readable format mm -hmm. so that machines can work with that law and um, you know, automatically register when they create something, for example. You know, I think that actually will allow us to segue into the law of robots um, because I, people sort of drop the term embedding the law in code, um, you know, to essentially making it so that you can't do something wrong because the machine won't let you. Um, but I think that sounds like a simple concept, but it becomes very complicated very quickly. And I'm going to throw out a hypo that maybe is is something similar to what you talk about in your class. But let's say you've got two autonomous cars that are about to collide. Um, and, uh, and the accident has a chance of, depending on what their reactions are, of hitting a pedestrian as well. Um, and the cars can talk to each other, and they can talk to the smartphone of the pedestrian. How do the cars and the smartphone decide who dies? Because that's essentially the decision that they'll be making, right? And maybe there's a car, baby in one uh, car and a human in another car. Um, and that's some pretty sophisticated embedding of morality and law. And that decision, that that's, is sort of a personal injury case that has to be resolved before anybody gets into a car. And how will we answer the question? You know, is it going to be a software developer at Google? Is it going to be written into statute? Are we going to require that uh, self-driving cars always save the life of, life of the uh, driver or the operator in the car? Are we going to require that they save the most lives in the field? I mean, you or could imagine... Give the driver a choice. Right. Exactly. Can you, can you buy a car uh, that, you know, for a relatively low price will save the most lives, but for a, a freemium add-on will save your life? <laughs> God. <laughs> you know, you uh, uh, it's it's kind of a silly example, but you know, it's a. Uh, it hardly seems unrealistic, though. 
Right. An in-app purchase allows me to save my own life. (laughs) Right. It could be even worse. You know, if you leave it up to the software manufacturer, uh, the software could be designed to uh, maximize shareholder value Mm -hmm. for the company that designs it. So there could be a very quick calculation to see which passenger and which car clicks the most ads in a search engine and results in the most revenue for the operating system manufacturer for the cars. Uh, Watch this video before you swerve. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Or, you know, you could also imagine um, these rules being in conflict. So some people will be driving... Apple self-driving cars and some will be driving Google Android self-driving cars and you know some might be driving a Microsoft self-driving car. Will they all talk to each other? Uh, when they talk to each other, what language are they going to use? Mm-hmm. And will each one of those different machines use different default settings where if they work together they could reach kind of an optimal life-saving result but if they don't work together they could actually cause a lot of deaths. Uh, do how relevant are Asimov's three slash four laws of robotics? Do Are those real or are those just uh, science fiction? Well, I think it's amazing that you know, he was able 60 years ago to uh, so brilliantly conceptualize what kinds of rules uh, would be important for machines. Can you quote him off the top of your head? Because I'm not sure everybody will know him. I probably can't do it off the top of my head, but it's something like, um, you know, no machine shall hurt a person. A machine should um, protect itself as long as um, it doesn't conflict with uh, the first rule. And machine should always follow the orders of people. I think it's something like it's that. A, I just pulled them up. The ro- first one is a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. The second is a robot must obey the orders given to it by human beings, except if that would conflict with the first law. And the third is a robot must protect its own existence uh, as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. Yeah, then, I got two and three out of order. Yeah, it you makes did, more yeah, sense that did. way. And then there's the zeroth law, which um, I've I've now completely forgotten what it is. Um, a robot may not harm humanity, or by inaction allow humanity to come to harm. Right, right. And uh, you know the the short story iRobot is great because of the short stories in iRobot. It's a series of uh, short stories about robots. And is that a sign reading in your bugs. class? No, no, we don't do okay. that. But um, <laughs> but it's a it's a great series of uh, stories because it shows how things go awry. It's not a future where everything is perfect. It's a future where everything is screwed up, which is the future we're going to live in. Right. <laughs> you know, you never get it right right out of the bag. And uh, that's, that's exactly what Asimov describes in that series of short stories when the robots go off the rails or when they make silly mistakes or when their coding is screwed up or when people imperfectly think out every scenario that they're programming the robots for. So who's drafting the law of robots right now? Because there must be laws that govern drones or um, self- autonomous vehicles and things. Well, the amazing thing about it is it, uh, it's almost nobody so you have these kind of uh, draft regs for drones out of the FAA, but they they basically said, you know, we regulate these things like we regulate airplanes, hmm. which is, you know, wrong. Um, and they've, the FAA has basically come out and said, we don't have a good handle on how we're going to regulate drones. Give us a couple of years to think through it. And in the meantime, uh, people are doing whatever they want, basically. <laughs> right. right. So you've got these guys who are flying drones with GoPros on them, up into the fireworks and the footage is beautiful but you know there's going to be 
all kinds of accidents with, with these things in the air. Um, California just passed a law that says that uh, paparazzi drones are illegal. Hmm. So you can't, um, you know, make your drone follow celebrities around trying to get pictures of them. Um, but it's interesting. It's probably the right result. It may not be constitutional. If you told people that they couldn't walk around taking pictures of celebrities, I think people would raise real First Amendment objections right. to it. If your camera flies in the sky and takes pictures, I don't see how that's any different. So it, there are there are kind of haphazard regulations of things like self-driving cars or of uh, drones here and there, but they tend to be written in response to you know terrible events or you know. Um, in response to lobbyists who have an axe to grind. So the, are there lawyers who specialize in this or is it just lobbyists looking for their out for themselves or their companies? It's both. It's both. There's a handful of lawyers uh, who deal with this and a handful of law professors who are thinking about it. It's a pretty small club. And so it, it's a, it'll be interesting over the next few years to see um, people who will actually have robotics practices um, in, in my class tomorrow, we're talking about labor law, and we have uh, Gary Mathiason, who is the managing partner of Littler Mendelssohn, who is coming in to talk about it. Littler has had a uh, robotics labor law practice for years because, you know, already there's a lot of robotic manufacturing, like your car is built mostly by robotic arms today. And... Uh, you know, that's an example of someone who has had like a robotics practice for a few years. But I think you'll see, you know, there'll be a team of people who do robotics law in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, mm -hmm. in Chicago, and Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I, there, will, there will be people with robotics practices, right. as ridiculous as that sounds today. I assume it'll also find its way into everyday law, right? I mean, people... I, I, have, a, I have a drone on my Amazon wish list right now because it's like 150 bucks, and um, I can imagine... Uh, a spouse using that to spy on uh, his spouse during a divorce proceeding or, um, you know, all kinds of stuff I can imagine creeping into just everyday consumer level law. Sure. Service by drone, um, you know, delivery by drone, what's admissible in court that, uh, you know, can you search someone's drone if you incident to, to an arrest? Can you fly your drone over an accident scene and drop a business card on the gurney? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Can you arm your drone to fight off the other PI lawyers' drones? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, from from the sublime, from the ridiculous to the sublime. <laughs> I imagine One we'll the, see that, the ridiculous before the sublime. <laughs> <laughs> sure, I'm sure. Um, you know, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is, um, you know, criminal law and how you hold uh, machines responsible when they begin acting autonomously. That seems like it's a long way off, but it probably isn't. And there are people who are writing articles saying you should throw machines in jail um, or you should erase their software or something like that. I'm also worried about how you catch them. Sure. I mean, do you send a plainclothes police officer after what could be a weaponized uh, machine? I don't want to call it a weaponized robot, but you could easily imagine all kinds of defenses that a machine could have to keep it from being captured by plainclothes police. They could fly in the air, they could have weapons attached or tear gas or all kinds of you know defenses built in. We're going to have to have like kind of a robotics police force to go catch these things. Oh, Blade Runner is not so far away, is it? <laughs> right. 
Uh, <laughs> someone paid Harrison Ford. That's right. Call him. Call him quickly. Um, so, I, I, if you had to, if you had to name a few things for the typical solo and small firm lawyer to watch out for over the next five to ten years when it comes to algorithms and AI and robots, what what sorts of opportunities and obstacles are we going to face? Well, the first things I think about are very practical for practice. And they're not necessarily robotic, but more algorithmic. Um, So we make a lot of decisions in our practices using hunches. Things like, where should I file this lawsuit? Where am I likely to get the best reception? How much is this case worth? Should I bother filing it or not? Am I going to be able to recoup enough money to make it worth the client's while, or are we going to lose the case? And a lot of this is dealt with today with hunches. Even the most experienced lawyers are using very tiny amounts of data to make these decisions. So I think one of the promises of uh, AI and robotics is that we'll have more information and more data to make better decisions and make them based on information and not just hunches. You know, the answer to how much is this case worth isn't a number or a hunch or a finger in the wind. It's a distribution. It's what people have recovered in similar cases and similar jurisdictions. And that distribution isn't known yet, but it's knowable. And so I think one of the hopes is that we'll have more information um, when making these kinds of decisions in court. Well, and and some of that, that's totally realistic because most of that information already exists. If you're a member of the National Institute of Trial Attorneys or uh, the National Association of Consumer Advocates, they maintain, you know, awards databases. Um, But it's not the kind of thing where you can just plug in your facts and get out, you know, get a a range that spit out at you. And it's really time consuming. If your client wants that, you have to spend a lot of money to get those uh, reports and you have to sort of put them together on your own, right? So, the idea of just plugging it into a computer and saying, give me, a, give me a range is pretty awesome. Yeah, I think those tools are coming. This is, as you said in the, in the top of the show, um, you know, we're, we're sort of sitting on a lot of this data right now. And one of, our, one of the things we've been trying to do at FastCase is to extract things like citation analysis out of the, out of the data itself, trying to find things like uh, how do judges decide cases like this? Or how long does it take to process things in different courts? Um, what courts are more likely to grant motions for summary judgment, and which ones aren't? How many? And you know, again, these aren't known, but they're not unknowable either. Right. I mean, you're sitting on, as I said at the beginning, a treasure trove of raw data, and part of it is just figuring out how to use it. Right. I mean, how many how many robots do you have working for you at Fastcase? Thousands. <laughs> uh, kidding aside, we, we work with algorithms all day, every day. And the idea is that you should be able to pull a lot of this information out of uh, the cases. I, I hate the term big data, but if it means anything, it means being able to use information that's hidden in plain sight. You know, right. things like uh, whether a case is reversed or remanded is sitting there. In the judicial opinions, if you can extract it out across, you know, 24 million documents or so, uh, that is gold. It's really valuable information. And we should expect to see tools that will help people practice with this information in the future. I mean, it could, I suppose it could be as simple as um, plugging in the, uh, 
the briefs on emotion and the decision and uh, trying to f- make connections between what worked and what dif- didn't across a number of cases. For example, I just read a statistic about um, the more you use words like clearly or very clearly in a brief, the more likely you are to lose your motion. <laughs> so like, uh, but I, I am sure there are many connections like that that could be extracted from uh, a complete data set or even a reasonably complete data set on litigation files. Right. So I would expect the first big trend for people to look out for is the ability to make decisions based on actionable information and not just hunches. And that'll be good for everybody. Better for lawyers, better for clients. Uh, the second big one I would say is that um, if, if your practice is really predicated on helping people to fill out forms, if your practice is very form-based, uh, it's probably time to start finding a new specialty. Right. Maybe not in the next uh, year, but within about 18 months to two years, there's going to be very good forms that do this kind of work. Um, a good example huh? of that is, uh, is immigration forms. So it's a very form-based practice. Um, a lot of that practice can be encoded into intelligent agents and wizards. And uh, you know, if, you're, if your practice is really revolving around filling out immigration forms and then tracking the progress through the system, it's really time to find a different uh, practice area. <laughs> Another good example of it is uh, bankruptcy petition filing. So. Um, our team at FastCase acquired from LexisNexis at the end of last year this product called uh, TopForm. And the idea is uh, kind of like a, a TurboTax for bankruptcy filings. And, you know, LexisNexis did, and we've been also encoding a lot of the bankruptcy law into these wizards. So you can basically walk a client through the questionnaire at the end have a bankruptcy petition ready to be e-filed in court. You know, in the past, that was a very onerous, um, meticulous, time-consuming task. You know, now you can get through it relatively quickly and very accurately because... Right, because a bankruptcy software is basically, it's it's uh, it's taking the, the somewhat ever-changing law of exemptions and qualifying for to file bankruptcy and stuff and consolidating it in software that will let you make fewer mistakes, right? And that's what you guys are powering with your bankruptcy software, right? Yeah, exactly right. The same In the same way that TurboTax did for individual tax filings. Right. And incidentally, uh, just like our conversation about the Industrial Revolution, it didn't put accountants out of business. It didn't put, you know, individual tax um, advisors out of business. It's just something that, you know, advisors do. They'll work together with TurboTax software to maybe perfect someone's filing or, you know, review it at the end or make sure that they've captured all of the deductions they possibly can. But it makes their job a lot easier because you don't have to do a lot of the the lay work and form filling work. And the same thing will happen in law. You know, along that kind of spectrum that uh, Richard Susskind and others talk about, the most commoditized areas of law, the most form-based, the most repetitive, the ones with the least amount of differentiation between clients, will almost certainly be done uh, with machines in the future. And I don't think anyone's going to miss that work. The conjecture, the hope is that it actually creates more jobs. Uh, People who are working with these kind of uh, intelligent agents can hopefully handle matters at a lower price. And if they can do that, it'll make law accessible to more people. 
and create a bigger pie of legal work for people to do, albeit at lower rates. So uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap up by asking you. Um, so one of the one of the reasons I love talking to Ed is um, that I think you have uh, this really cool uh, cerebral sort of business because that's what legal research is, right? And you are, like I said at the beginning, you're wicked smart, and your company is built around taking this stuff, all this amazing raw data, and figuring out cool ways to give empower lawyers to do stuff with it. And I think the way you guys are doing it at Fastcase is pretty unique and original and and awesome, the, just the way you're thinking about solving these problems. And so what I'm, what I'm wondering is if you'll give us just a hint of uh, some of the cool stuff that you're working on down in the Fastcase Skunk Works. <laughs> well, uh, thanks. First of all, it's very nice of you to say. Uh, we work very hard at that. The, uh, the big idea behind Fastcase is that we're trying to replace very expensive editorial operations um, with very intelligent algorithmic ones. Mm-hmm. And so things that used to be done by vast cubicle farms of lawyers and paralegals, things like summarizing cases or categorizing cases into um, key number systems or taxonomies, we can now replace with things like citation analysis and data visualization. Um, I analogize it to the beginning of the web. When you wanted to find something on the web in 1994, you would use Yahoo. Uh, if you wanted to find a used car dealer in Minneapolis, St. Paul, you would go to automobiles, Minnesota, uh, Minneapolis, uh, used cars, and there'd be a list of the four websites of used car dealers in Minneapolis. Um, and that was because somebody at Yahoo read every page of the web and hand categorized it into the outline. Mm-hmm. Um, that model died in 1998 when Google came out with PageRank, which allowed Google to index the entire web ahead of time, not hand categorize it, but allow people to do keyword search over it and sort it intelligently using citation analysis so that the things you were looking for were at the top of the list. Um, And as soon as that came out, the old editorial model of hand selecting and categorizing every page on the web went kaflooey. Uh, that hand categorization is exactly what West Key Number System is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the best, most efficient way of finding stuff when we were in a book-based world. I can't for the life of me figure out how it economically makes sense to do that in a world of search with citation analysis. And so, you know, it's it's just at the scale of law today. In order to do that, you have to hire a ton of people. And to pay those people, you have to charge astronomical rates for the service. But if you could build a system that is scalable and algorithmic instead of editorial, then you can do it at a much lower cost and deliver better results in the same way that Google uh, really one-upped Yahoo with uh, PageRank. So that's, that's the enterprise behind Fastcase. The idea is to use um, algorithms, intelligent agents, citation analysis, data visualization to uncover insights that you couldn't find using older editorial services. So um, one example of that is Bad Lawbot, the first big data citator. When, uh, when courts cite overturned cases, they have to say so. The blue book says that you have to put after your citation, you know, reverse by this other case. It's a signal, uh, and that's a standard. So what we've done is we've actually analyzed all 75 million citations in the Fastcase library, 
and pulled out all of those signals. And so where a court tells us that a case is overturned, we mark it as overturned. Um, that work traditionally has done, been done by an army of lawyers who read every case and read every citation. Uh, and it was, by the way, if they get it wrong in 1965, uh, it stays wrong forever. Right. So with <laughs> algorithms, you can do multiple passes. You can do a pass and get a lot of good answers and then another pass that refines it and makes it better. And, and I suppose you can ask your users to tell you how, how good it is, right? Exactly. And so you can continually refine it and make it better in a way that you can't with editorial systems. So Fastcase is essentially the Iron Man armor for the average lawyer. <laughs> TM. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, well, it is a little bit like augmented lawyering. So the yes. idea is that you can work with the algorithms um, to produce, you know, smarter, faster results that you can rely on with more confidence. Uh, well, so then we managed to get cyborgs in at the very end here. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, a teaser, we're coming out with a new version of Fastcase at the end of the year. Um, it goes into private alpha in a couple of weeks. It's called Fastcase 7. At least that's the sort of internal code name for it. We may come up with separate uh, Iron Man branding for it in 2015. No, I think you when should. When we release it. But um, <laughs> it's going to be really cool. It's a single-page app. It has a lot more of the data visualization tools up front. And, um, you know, it's going to allow you to do all kinds of crazy things like do citation analysis across different kinds of law. And um, we're excited about it. We've been cooking it for a lot of this year, keeping it under wraps. But um, it's going to be uh, just drop-dead gorgeous. Awesome. Well, Ed, thank you so much for chatting about robots and AI and, as it turns out, cyborgs. Um, I really enjoyed it. As always, love talking to you, and uh, I hope you'll come back sometime. Thank you, Sam. Love you, love you, show. This podcast is brought to you by Smokeball. Smokeball is the engine that powers successful small law firms across the country, each serving their clients with lightning speed, efficiency, and excellence. Because they finally have a tool that organizes their files, creates a standard process, eliminates errors, and gives them the peace of mind to practice. The Smokeball team has spent over 22 years learning how to train and support the staff of small law practices. Their proprietary setup and training process immerses their team in your business and workflow, giving them an intimate understanding of what you need the Smokeball software to do. With over 115 different matter types, Smokeball collects exactly the information you need to execute your work, including multiple parties on a case, business entities, and marital partners. Then it merges your client and case information into the unique documents, forms, and PDFs you use most often, all the while storing client emails back to the digital file as they are sent or received, keeping you effortlessly organized and ready to take on each client call with ease. Smokeball empowers your small law firm to manage emails and documents easily, create documents faster by automating the documents and forms you use every day, and gives you a digital filing system in the cloud so your staff can work together from anywhere. Visit smokeball.com lawyerist to learn more. Thanks to Postali for sponsoring this episode of the Lawyerist podcast. Instead of reading from a script today, I've got Jim Christie from Postali with a story about how stressful it can be to spend money on marketing. Yeah, thanks, Sam. Um, one of the most stressful times for us early in the business was I was sitting in my office just hand-stamping hundreds of these large catalog envelopes, 
and just thinking, is it always as terrifying? So Jim is describing Postali's first big advertising expense. He says the terrifying part was wondering if the money he was spending would pay off. Jim, tell me, what was it about that moment that created so much stress for you? Well, this was several years ago, and at the time we were a really small company, just a couple people trying to build a business. And cash was really tight. Uh, So like any small business, we just couldn't afford to invest in advertising that didn't work. So what was your plan? Well, we defined our market. So fortunately, we knew the market really well. Uh, Unfortunately, no one had heard of us. So we're having a really hard time getting anyone to engage with us, uh, especially if we were just cold calling on the phone. Uh, So we created some really specific direct mail pieces. Uh, All in for the mail, we were right around $4,000 in total cost. Uh, Now, we had every expectation that it would pay off. But that didn't stop me from totally freaking out when I was thinking about losing this four grand. In other words, making an investment in marketing is stressful, even for the guys in the marketing business. But that stress can be a good thing. Yeah, yeah. The people who were stamping those envelopes with me then are still at post And we all remember the mix of excitement and fear as we were taking that big plunge. Uh, and it's those experiences that we just always call back to, and they really allow us to understand how our clients are feeling when they come to us full of ambition and anxiety. Um, you know, they want to grow their firm, and that's motivating to us. We really want to be there when it's time to push your firm forward, and we want to be the people that you lean on when you're having those stressful moments and you're afraid that you can't do it. So Postali is a marketing agency for attorneys that will help you push your firm forward. Learn more about them by visiting postali.com slash lawyerist. That's P-O-S-T-A-L-I. To make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening.